0: Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging, and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hi, Tony Hackett is my name, and I'm your host at the Startups Roundtable, where we speak to founders and those involved with the startup ecosystem to learn from their experiences and gain wisdom from their unique insights. Today's guest is Kelsey Morgan, and she is a startup advisor for women leaders and the founder of her growth advisory firm, K Morgan & Co. As you will hear in this conversation, Kelsey is working towards financial equity for all through the sustainable growth of impact-driven companies. There is a lot to uncover from Kelsey's last 10 years helping female founders speed up the development of their startups. So let's meet Kelsey.
1: So I'm Kelsey Morgan. I'm the founder of KMorgan Co. And basically, I'm a startup advisor for female founders. We work with early stage startups, particularly in social impact spaces. And I'm working to close that gendered funding gap and the revenue gap for female founders and helping them hit these breakout months through partnerships and growth strategy. It's been great because I've been working with people who they're early female founders. They're experiencing some of that doubt that you see in early stage companies and like lack of support or doing it all themselves. And by helping them bring in these deals that are 10x what they've seen before, they really achieve that confidence and feel more freedom of time and money and are able to really build a life that's more sustainable and more on their terms. That's been really impactful for me.
2: It's a pretty big mission and uh, a lot of areas we could go to. You've actually hit on a word that I was wanting to speak with you about today, and that's confidence. We'll get to a whole lot of other things in a moment, but given you just used it in your opening, confidence is something that has been front of mind for me uh, with people returning to the workforce. So not gender specific, but coming back to the workforce. And I've been trying to work out how you would determine the business value of confidence I think there are ways to do it uh, in a philosophical and a conceptual level, but what you're doing is trying to understand an audience and to help them through those sorts of hurdles and use the word doubts. Could you take me through a little of that and what that experience is like from your side and also from the side as you see it from those that you're helping?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is huge, that confidence component, especially for a first-time founder or an early-stage company. There's a lot of people asking them to prove their concept. There's a lot of people asking them, Investors specifically, people that want to invest in their business, they're asking them where is the revenue coming from, et cetera. And if they're going to prove out a new vertical specifically, which is what I'm helping them with, there's a lot of unknowns. Sometimes it's helpful to work with someone who's just been there before and I've advised companies through this before. And sometimes if you can just get them that first deal or if you can be a person who's done this before and gotten them six figure deals, if they were just making 10K, like let's bring in your first 100K deal instead of 10K. What does that look like? How does that feel once you do it? And I've seen that the impact for the founders is that once you close that deal, they can take their revenue from six to seven figures within the next few months or seven to eight figures even within the next few months because they have that one Just that first trial, that first 90 days, if you can really prove it out. And I've seen founders where that confidence can just can bring in investments of 10, 15, 20 million dollars within the next few weeks right after we close that first sale. So I think it really just helps bring them. They know a little bit more of their roadmap and where their company is going to go next once we do that.
2: The social impact space is one that I read about a lot, and I've had the the great fortune to speak to some other founders who have been focused in that area. Could you provide your definition of social impact as it applies to the work that you're doing and the people that you're working with?
1: So I love working with companies that I started in ed tech. And I started working primarily with EdTech founders. Back in the day before I was in startups, I was in education and I was a teacher. So it makes sense that now I'm coaching and advising similar in some ways. So basically, I I started in EdTech, which I think is social impact minded. How do we use technology to really inform what we're building and what we want the future to look like? I look for innovative companies across different, like industry agnostic, but I look for either like health and wellness or a company that's providing parental leave benefits or just someone that is doing something innovative that I believe will have massive impact or social change, whether that's like selling to companies or creating different marketplaces that could be really useful or the implications of AI and VR and how we can use those and education and health and other areas. So that's kind of what I look for.
2: It makes a lot of sense to me. We actually share some common background there. I in a previous life was a, a teacher and also in the tech industry, which I've been in for the last 30 years thereabouts. I worked with a company focused in the higher ed sector and I was reflecting back on that and the importance of it. And if it's important always, it can't be more important than now. What are some of the changes you've seen from maybe a year ago versus the last six months?
1: I think it's really relevant, the ed tech space right now. We're seeing right now, specifically, I'm in San Francisco. I'm seeing a lot of micro schools happening where COVID, basically, people are asking the question, what is education? And I think for a lot of parents, they weren't really asking that question or they didn't really have to ask that question. It was, we send our kids to school and that's how it's been for a long time. So I think that parents, now that they're virtually schooling and they're seeing what their kids are up to on Zoom, there's this question of what do I want my kids to learn and what's actually really valuable. There's a component of traditional education that's really valuable. And then there's another component of we want to be teaching other things to our kids, like Emotional empathy and ability to have these like deep conversations with other people because that's how you build good managers and good team communicators. So, I think there's some social skills shifting happening within the teaching space. And I've been talking to a few people that are looking to do that. And on a technology level, I've been seeing some really cool companies doing VR and AI and using that to train teachers and educators. And so, I'm seeing that this is going to be. I think the VR space is going to take off for professional development and for ed tech in the coming years. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that wave as well.
2: On that VR, AI angle, how would you describe the business case being built right now and, and how those that are looking to invest are starting to think about the short and medium term impacts to their customers?
1: I think companies are investing more and more in their employees. And I think there's a shift happening in the past few years and in the next few years to where employers and employee benefits are really going to, they're going to make the difference um, between people staying and not staying. And in places like San Francisco, like, there, people move jobs every year, two years here. So I think the question becomes like, we're wasting a lot of money on churn with employees and how do we get people to stay? And I think particularly for particularly for women, just because I'm having a lot of conversations with them. I'm seeing parental leave and people that are being companies that are being more supportive of, you know, women coming back to the workforce and parents coming back to the workforce, like you were saying, but also supporting people that want to have families, I think is going to become more and more important, but also just providing benefits that are going to keep employees wanting to stay at the company longer and companies don't have access right now to their large cafeterias or their in-house benefits. So I think remote benefits of like educating their population or allowing them to have access to personal and professional development and wellness services, I think it's going to be a big transition. And then also using, like we we're saying that, that VR and AI, like using technology to allow people to better themselves, I think is going to be a big trend. Starting to see it now, but hoping that that will continue to take off.
2: That's a really interesting point. You've made me think about my own situation. I work with a a tech company. I'm based in Sydney. Part of my salary package is that I have a car park. And that was great when I joined the company because I had a car. (laughs) I, I, I haven't had a car for maybe nearly two years now. And it's a part of the package. It's not like you can unbundle it and put some pennies in your pocket. It doesn't work that way. And that's going to become even more so going forward. So at a point... To be able to have a a car park in essentially the CBD area of Sydney, that all changes. And the way companies differentiate their packaging, there are so many nuances that can be considered. And then some of the companies, whether they do consider it or not, it does start to put the onus on education in the broadest sense then. It's not just about being able to explain how family groups can start to leverage back to the VR and AI perspective. That's a really interesting area. Could you share with me how you attract customers or founders to work with you? Essentially, you'll go to market, how you've built that out and how you've refined it over
0: time.
1: So I've been doing this for about 10 years. I come from working with startups full time and basically like I was feeling that same restriction that I work with founders now, like I was feeling that back then of either not having enough time or money. If you had the full-time job and the really good benefits and the good salary, maybe I didn't have enough time. And and I wanted both <laughs> basically. And I wanted to be able to make my own schedule and have a big impact doing something that I love and doing something that people really connect with. So when I started working in advising and strategy, I would come into a company, let's say, and I was working full-time doing this and they would be making 10K or 20K deals. And I would think, how do we take this and 10 exit, 15 exit, 20 exit? How do we do that in 90 days? Basically, if you're focusing on one client and one deal, who is the one person that one company, et cetera, the type of company that we could reach out to. And then we could get a hundred deals from that. We could get 500 deals from that. So I started developing partnership ecosystems for these companies. And that started working really well. We would hit six figure sales every 90 days. And then once we did that, they would transition the company's whole revenue structure. So that's when I realized, oh, I can have a massive impact for these companies and help them get to that extra zero within just working with them in 90 days. So I transitioned to advising after that because I had kind of built out and proved out that strategy. And once I did that for... You know, six seven years. It was like, oh, this is exactly how you do this, and it was repeatable. The industry changed, but the way that you go about it was the same. What I realized was there's a feelings component underneath that of like the going from fear and uncertainty and not sure where we're going to go next to that confidence and like, here's our next space. And then there's also the physical component of being able to bring in that investment. So when I launched. Basically, I was offered a job to be a COO at one company full time, and on paper it looked great. They had great investors, the investors behind Twitter, et cetera, and they had about twenty million in the bank, and. I turned it down to launch my advisory full time because I felt really come to help these female founders in early stages. And I wanted to be able to have a massive impact on lots of companies. And I got really clear that being just at one company full time wasn't for me. It was more that I wanted to work with many companies and help them succeed. And that I think we will really shift things when we put a lot of money in the hands of different types of founders, I think we will create a lot more innovative products. And women will tend to to funnel money back into their communities. They tend to be the heads of household in terms of what they're doing financially anyway. So I think it will stimulate the local economies. I really believe in helping make that type of change and create more equitability. That's where I decided to focus.
2: There's one thing to have passion, but it's to have passion coupled with purpose. That's an uh, amazing summary that you've just provided. So thank you. It leads me to a question around diversity and inclusion. And it might seem a little bit odd given your passion and your purpose. But what would be maybe one or two things you would say to me around diversity and inclusion that you have seen that has made a difference? You would encourage anybody to reflect upon to create a change in their world.
1: One of the biggest things is looking at who's at the table. And at any company, the reason why I choose to work with female founders is because there's an innate understanding of DEI instead of some companies like want to include it, but the way that the company was structured wasn't really built that way. So they tend to be already inclusive. But if there's other companies that have diverse leaders. And I look at, are the women in the company just in stereotypical marketing, office admin? Are they just in those roles? Is the one Black person, Black woman at the company in a DEI position? And to me, that's not diversity and inclusion. That's saying that you're trying to be inclusive, but not particularly succeeding, in my opinion. So I look at who has an actual ability to influence decisions at the company, because that's how you know that people's voices are going to be heard. So if they have that in leadership, then that's probably a company that I want to work with because the types of hires that they make will be naturally inclusive, the types of programming that they support, the types of HR initiatives. And then also I look at during meetings, particularly board meetings who are their advisors and investors. If I can sit on a board and be part of that conversation as a woman in tech, then maybe I can help provide another perspective that would help a woman in the company somewhere down the line. That's kind of where I'm thinking and where I'm focused. But I think it also comes down to those board meetings and whose voice is being amplified. And if people are really taking the time to listen and amplify the voices of people that might not necessarily be heard, I think that that's important.
2: Amplify. That's a brilliant word to use in this respect. The company I work with, which is a global tech firm, we have some amazing leaders and all levels and styles of diversity and inclusion. We had our global kickoff two years ago. So we have it annually, but the one two years ago, there was a panel that I attended and one of our regional leaders, a lady, I asked the question on the panel, what can we do that is executable that we could do right now? And her answer was, just invite someone to a meeting that you wouldn't have previously. I thought that it was so powerful because I could do that and anybody could do that. But you've made me think about another layer of that. And I, I want to think that I do this, but the word amplify matters. It's one thing to invite, but actually the real engagement and the real value is helping to amplify somebody else's voice. So I think you've actually given a, a tremendous answer there. Kelsey, when you look at trends and you look for data to help guide the growth of your company and the work that you do, where do you go to find those insights?
1: About what in particular? Just about the market or?
2: It could be the market. So for your business, so you're sitting here today and you think, okay, I'm going to do my planning for the next three years. You're obviously talking to people, you have your own sense of the market. But if you went looking for research or hard data that was fresh data to help guide, your mission. Where do you go looking for that?
1: I have a few sites that I really like to follow and a few places that are sending me emails, but I'll go and I'll check a company out on Crunchbase. I'll check them out on LinkedIn and I'll have a conversation with their founders. And then if I can get into like a board meeting before I decide to invest with them. I'll do that. I'll check out their pitch decks and get really deep into their revenue and their unit economics and things like this, make sure that the company's really solid. But that's just before I'm bringing in a new company. And if I have someone that's looking to work with me, generally, I'll check out CrunchBase and kind of see what they've been up to lately. And what types of funding rounds they've received and what type of technology they're using. And if I don't know about the technology, I might reach out to some friends and some investors and learn a little bit more, but it's kind of the basic process. There's a few more like sites that I'll check out.
2: Maybe if I could ask this question in closing for us today, and it's around mentors and coaches, and you're in a position of guests that I've had on the podcast. I'm going to ask you if you could answer it from two perspectives. One is about when you look for mentors and coaches, how you make those decisions about what's going to help you. Equally, when you're asked to be a mentor or a coach, what's your thought process?
1: I'll do it in reverse here. So I think about The coaching and mentoring are very interlinked, whether you're a teacher, mentor, coach, advisor. When I work with founders, I think part of my role is rather than telling them exactly what they need to do because they know more about their business, they're in it day to day. I think my role as an advisor is rather to listen with empathy and to hear their challenges and try to ask insightful questions that can help elicit the answers or clarify the problem as we're talking so that a way for it becomes more visible. So that's what I, I see myself providing as well as some like high level strategy and perspective of someone who's kind of been there before with other companies. But I believe in coaching and I work with coaches myself. And I think it's valuable for me to have someone who's been there and who's done what I'm trying to achieve. And I think it's really valuable to grow in leaps instead of steps. <laughs> and I try to help my companies do do this with money and they do like every three months, like they up level. But basically for me, if I want to grow, like I just, I actually just hired a coach to help me with this next level of my marketing with my company. And she is the expert in this field and she's the expert at messaging. So she can help me grow, you know, years of experience because she's been there. So I look for that. I'm like, who is this person that has the exact feeling that I want to have? Where is my pain point? And what's the feeling? I want to achieve. And then I look for someone who can help transform that because I really think coaching is a process of personal and professional transformation.
2: Great answer and a wonderful way for us to, to close this conversation. Appreciate taking the time. It's been wonderful to hear about your passion and your your mission and your purpose and some really valuable tips and insights you've shared. So Kelsey, thanks for joining me
1: today. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Tony. It's been great to be here. I really appreciate it.
0: Kelsey shared a lot of great learnings in today's conversation. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. As always, feedback is appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.